Hello, and welcome back to the Film Brain Podcast. Boy, has it been a long time since one of these, actually. I totally planned to have a year off. I totally didn't. It's only fitting that the last episode, before the hiatus, was on a three-hour DC movie, and now I've come back a year later, and we're talking about a three-hour DC movie. So, in some respects... Not much has really changed, <laughs> but we are talking today about the big new superhero movie, The Batman, directed by Matt Reeves, and I've brought some company with me. Yeah, I'm Scott. I uh, am mostly notable from the YouTube channel NerdSync. I also have a podcast where I debunk ancient alien stuff. I'm also just a big dang comic book nerd, and I love superheroes, and I love these movies, so I'm excited to be here. My name is Emily. I do the YouTube channel uh, Lady Emily, and I also co-write for Sarah's Ad. And when I'm not doing that, I'm gushing about Batman on Twitter a lot. <laughs> uh, so that's why I was invited. Hello, my name is Kaylin, and uh, on the internet, I'm often found under the username of Mars Girl. I've done video-related stuff for pushing 20 years on the internet, and I'm currently a professional closed caption and subtitle editor on a bunch of different anime and stuff, which is cool and fun. And also, I like Batman, and my other favorite Batman film is actually Mask of the Phantasm. Woo, good pick. Good pick. Yeah. Which I think is great, regardless of whether or not it is animated. I think it's a fantastic film. And this one gave me the fizz like that. Yeah, Master of the Phantasm, definitely up there for me in terms of Batman films. I think it might actually be my favorite. I'm not sure at this point where I place the Batman, but it's definitely up top somewhere. I'm not sure if it dethrones Master of the Phantasm for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. However, before we get into a more in-depth discussion, I will quickly describe the plot. So, the Batman man centers on bruce wayne played here by robert pattinson who is in his second year as the caped crusader when the mayor of gotham is killed by the riddler played by paul dano left at the crime scene is an envelope specifically marked to the batman which means that lieutenant gordon played by jeffrey wright has to bring him into the case batman begins to investigate and recruits Catwoman, played by Zoe Kravitz, as a way of embedding himself into the criminal underworld, and it becomes clear that the Riddler has knowledge of a vast conspiracy involving a number of government officials in Gotham that he specifically targets. And now Batman must uncover that, as well as its links to organised crime. And Falcone, played by John Turturro, and Oz, played by Colin Farrell, which also seems to link back to the Wayne family. Whew, that's a lot of plot, but I think I've just about managed <laughs> to get it all in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Perfect. Absolutely crushed it. They managed to get a lot of Batman characters into this Batman movie. Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine that? Batman characters in a Batman film for once? Yeah. <laughs> what was everyone's general thoughts on the film? Oh, I liked it a lot. Mm. <laughs> I thought it was really good. Yeah. It's one of those things that I've been talking about with my partner. We've been just talking about it constantly. I think she's more obsessed with it than I am, and I like it a whole bunch. She will not stop talking. Every time there's like a <laughs> lull in the conversation, she's like, what other Batman villains do you think would fit into this universe for the next movies? Like, she's just always, always wanting to talk about it. And uh, <laughs> no, I think I, I had a blast with it. I can't wait to see it again. I've only seen it the once. I'm dying to see it again. It was real good. So I've kind of seen 
seen it twice. So uh, this will come up later, but mm. I was one of the test audiences back in October. And at that time, I was like, man, is this the best Batman movie? This might be the best Batman movie. And like, I wasn't really sure because the version I saw at that point was technically incomplete. A mm-hmm. bunch of visual effects were not done yet. And so I needed the one extra screening that I went to on Thursday to really be sure. And aside from one different thing, it is still really, really, really good. (laughs) Interesting. I adored it. I I saw it Thursday and I just had a big grin on my face the whole time. And the drive home, I was just gushing about it in the car to myself because it's nice to talk to yourself about movies you like when you're driving. (laughs) And I had to go see it again. I don't know if it's the best Batman movie because I need time to still ruminate on that before I can say it. Mm -hmm. But it is the Batman movie I've wanted my whole life. And for that, I I have a lot of love for it. I enjoyed this a lot, actually. Again, I'm not sure how I would place this among Batman movies because there is a lot of them, so I don't think it's easy to make a definitive ranking. But in terms of, I think, nailing the character, this is well at the top, especially in terms of live-action incarnations. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking about a live-action movie that, as we've already mentioned, definitely compares with something like Mask of the Phantasm, which I think for many fans has been the high bar that a lot of live-action Batman films have struggled to attain in some respects. Mm -hmm. I was impressed with the movie a lot, and I enjoyed it, and I was really engaged with it, even though it had a very long running time. And I don't mean this as a detraction. It's the kind of movie I watched and I found really impressive, but I couldn't point to a singular moment in it and went, wow, because I feel like the whole thing works as a complete unit in totality. Mm. You can't point to one immediate thing about it and go, that's the immediate standout moment. I think the whole film is kind of its own standout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did have a wow moment and I don't know if this is a thing that we want to jump to right away but I guess for now I'll just briefly say I got a lot of thoughts about the car chase Mm, the Batmobile and the Penguin so whenever is the appropriate time to jump to that I think we can dive into that I'll just say after this point we are going to go full pelt into spoilers because hey it's a podcast what else are we going to (laughs) talk about let's actually talk about the movie now yeah let's do it so in that case I did feel like extremely strongly about that car chase scene Mm. because of the way it was shot. You know, you find in a lot of car chase scenes and a lot of other movies, the camera will pull out and you'll see long stretches of road that they're driving down and you can see all of the cars that they're going to have to weave through. But this one was shot in such a way that it's extremely claustrophobic. The camera is really close to every important vehicle. The camera's like attached to the sides of these cars so that you can see in the driver's side window or just outside the driver's side door or something Mm. like that. And you just see how close they're getting to these other cars. And because of that, like I said, it feels so claustrophobic and you feel yourself tensing up in the seat and like gripping the armrest like, oh, don't hit that car! (laughs) This is what that felt like to me. Absolutely. Another thing for me that made that chase sequence feel so intense that it is mostly 
shown through Penguin's perspective. Mm -hmm. You don't get a lot of Batman and what he's doing. You're mm -hmm. following the car, but really you're seeing it at, through Penguin's perspective as he's just trying to get away and nothing he can do can stop this relentless vigilante who's coming after him. And I think it just makes the presence of Batman feel even more powerful. Yeah, yeah. And like the thing that got me about that, what I was really excited for going into it was seeing the Batmobile and the fact that it's like an actual car again mm. and not like a tank because we have the Bat tank for like mm -hmm. many films now in many years. Yeah, it kind of looks like a Dodge, maybe a Dodge Charger or something. Yeah, it looks like he just found a car at like a scrapyard and then attached a giant rocket booster to it and was like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> that made it, in my opinion, a lot more intense because it's like, I don't know what all this Batmobile can do. Like, yeah. it's not like one of those where you can pull out like a Gatling gun or he can pull out like a grappling hook or something like that and just stop this car and pull it back. It's like, no, this has to be a legit dirty chase mm -hmm. through this highway. Yeah, it's this absolutely relentless pursuit midway through the movie. And I think going back to the idea of the Batmobile kind of being this scrappy thing that Bruce Wayne has assembled, it almost feels like it's kind of built like a stunt car in a certain respect where it's like, yeah. it's built to take a hit. It's built to kind of just plow through traffic to a certain extent. I think that car chase is definitely the closest thing to like a big traditional comic book set piece mm -hmm. in the movie generally. I do think there is a little bit of that moment where the audience gets that pause before the Batmobile is finally revealed. I think that's the closest the film gets to one of those sort of crowd-pleasing moments that you traditionally see in a lot of comic book mm -hmm. films mm -hmm. where they kind of stop for the audience to kind of appreciate, this is the thing you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the closest yeah. the film does. <laughs> I get it, I get it. That car chase is really well shot, very tight. Also, it's very clear in terms of how things are laid out, and it's something that I found generally through the rest of the movie, but particularly in that sequence where it could have very easily got cluttered considering how much actually happens in that sequence, mm -hmm. but you can follow exactly what's happening, and even when the action moves away from Batman, there's still enough visual information that you can tell what's happening. At the very end of that car chase, when Batman plows through the flames, right before that you see the Batmobile going up on a ramp yeah. which gives you enough visual information for you to understand like oh that's how he got through the other side of that yeah <laughs> absolutely I want to push back a little bit I did struggle a bit keeping up with the car chase it's almost certainly not the movie's fault it is exclusively because the theater I was watching it in did not dim their lights all the way throughout oh, the whole movie no. oh no which made some parts of this movie hard to make out because it's a very dark movie visually yeah yeah oh that's so sad though <laughs> that's disappointing you know what? i've had that before now i've actually had one time where they'd accidentally left the cleaning lights on and i had to walk out like you left the main lights on yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i was thinking about this yesterday just how dark the movie is i don't know if this is one when it comes to streaming i recommend watching on streaming because this really needs the full color spectrum and i know like black levels can get crushed really really hard on streaming mm -hmm. admittedly yes on my tv especially too i still don't have a 4k tv i'm still on 10 1080p. Anything that I have to watch or any video games that I might play that are in a dark area is just the worst. Ugh. It's almost impossible. It's awful. Mm -hmm. Which is why I'm thinking, man, do I need to go up to OLED? I don't know if it's worth it to buy an OLED TV just to watch the Batman. <laughs> so. I've found with a lot of televisions, what they do is they like to crank up the contrast and things like that, which is mm. really annoying. One of my TVs for years
years, it annoyed me because I knew the black level was completely wrong because it was crushing night scenes terribly. Yeah. And then I had to spend an afternoon just faffing through the settings like, that's where they've hidden the set black level yeah. setting. Mm-hmm. Oh, you say it's high out of the box, have you? Oh, <laughs> could you crank that down to low? <laughs> yes. We like to think that in this short age that everyone's watching the same movie with the same picture quality, but they aren't. Right. Especially when it comes to dark movies and compression. Compression can play real havoc with that. So I'd imagine mm-hmm. this is really one you should properly buy on a Blu-ray when it comes out on home video. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to say about the movie's appearance in general that while it is a very dark movie i can say this in a properly lit theater (laughs) (laughs) brag about it i never felt like i was watching something that was too dark it always felt just right Mm -hmm, in terms of the lighting appearance like it's dark but not oppressively so it's not to the point where you couldn't make out what was happening which i feel like is just a general problem with a lot of movies in terms of color grading where they go really overzealous with night scenes and make it very hard to see Whereas this, it felt like Matt Reeves was very much in control of everything and knew exactly what he wanted. It felt like he had a very singular vision and you can see that on screen very much so. Yeah. Yeah. When I was watching it, I was like, why do I like the kind of darker color grading here when it like didn't work for me in Batman v Superman all that much? Mm. The difference is this feels very natural. Like it's very stylized, but it still looks good. It still looks like a good image. Batman v Superman, I felt was really muddy looking in a lot of places Uh, i did not get that same sensation here yeah i I would say that in terms of batman v superman i feel like in certain senses the look of batman v superman was trying to push the tone onto the movie whereas in the case of the batman the sort of noir elements of the story means that the look of the movie is perfectly in keeping and you can tell that reeves has really drawn a lot of inspiration from touchstones in that particular genre you see a lot of david fincher in the appearance of the movie seven yeah. mm-hmm. is very much like a cornerstone zodiac the way that's constantly raining is very evocative of something like seven i would say that paul dano's performance definitely an amalgamation of John Doe from Seven and Zodiac in general was a killer. I would also say a little bit of Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners in there as well. Again, not just because Paul Dano's also in that. (laughs) In terms of movies that Reeves was trying to evoke, I think he knew exactly what he wanted to do and very much stuck to that in terms of appearance. Yeah, Mm -hmm. even beyond just like movie influences, it felt a lot like he was trying to mimic the art style and shadow style of Long Halloween and like Tim Sale's art mm-hmm. a lot which i appreciated because this movie is very long halloween through and through mm-hmm. isn't the opening murder set on halloween if i remember correctly it is yeah yeah it's a total nod to long halloween 100 percent. i looked it up matt reeves apparently had jeff Loeb as a professor at usc mm. oh really oh wow so it's like oh no wonder that this is really long halloween inspired <laughs> because he was literally taught by the dude <laughs> <laughs> i kept kind of hoping as i was hearing oh a bunch of really important people are getting killed off and nobody Nobody knows who this guy is or why it is he's doing it. And I kept having my fingers crossed like, are we going to have the phantasm? Because that's what the phantasm does. <laughs> and it wasn't that. But it did make me really happy when in an interview sometime later, Robert Pattinson had mentioned, oh, the only movie that's really gotten Batman's or Bruce's even character right was Mask of the Phantasm. 
and I was like, yes, <laughs> that is good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I feel like it's a good time to talk about the performance of Robert Pattinson because I do feel like he definitely gives his particular take on the character and I feel like he plays into the angle that being the Batman is devouring Bruce Wayne. Yeah. It, it is always a common theme in a lot of the Batman portrayals that Bruce Wayne is really the mask and Batman is who he really is. But I feel like that's especially true in this movie where he is so all-encompassing in terms of his obsession of being Batman to the point where he self-describes himself as being vengeance. Mm -hmm. This anger that seethes through him. You can kind of see it in the moments where he's out of costume. He's still, a lot of the time, got the eye makeup on and looks disheveled. (laughs) It is a very dark take on the character. We've seen other variations of Bruce Wayne in previous versions that are kind of in the same ballpark. Ben Affleck's version in Batman v Superman has some of the same absolute tendencies as this one, but that's kind of from a different angle. I do feel like Pattinson really made this role his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just the amount of time that he was Batman versus Bruce Wayne. Like, Mm. he is in the costume for at least 90% of his performance here. He is first and foremost Batman, more than Bruce Wayne. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't want to praise this movie by bashing on other movies, but I feel like a lot of (laughs) comic book superhero movies do things to make it so you can see the actor in the costume without the mask on. Like, they'll, they'll, they'll definitely try and capitalize on, this is the actor you like, and here's their face. They don't have to fight in a mask all the time whereas Pattinson here as Batman is just almost exclusively Batman in this movie Mm -hmm. and I really appreciate that I also really appreciated that you could tell that the way Batman has affected Bruce's life it's affecting Bruce's real world identity Mm -hmm. and social situations and everybody's commenting on man you're a real recluse Mm -hmm. and he goes out into the world and he still doesn't look like he's okay (laughs) you're just kind of going man this has really affected him because there's a lot of other movies where he's like oh i gotta keep up this act of being a real rich guy who's busy all the time and i got lots of ladies and like that's not this bruce Mm. this bruce is like man where have you been you're just some weird dude who doesn't come out of his tower and you're not doing enough for the city funnily enough i would think that that alone would make people think i wonder if he's batman (laughs) because he's got all this time to do this but apparently not i guess i thought that portrayal was very very good it was really interesting to me because it does feel like its own take on Batman and like Bruce. It's it's very clearly its own world. It's, it's doing its own things. But in in some ways, it felt like the most I've seen the comic book Batman or like the animated series Batman in film mm. because it was just like yeah, he's bitter, he's edgy, but he's also like he's a bit weird. He's a bit socially awkward. Mm. He has these little quips that aren't superhero Marvel style quips, but just this dry thing of like the the thumb drive joke. Yeah, or like his chemistry with Catwoman, which is just like him not being mean. But just being really weird and like out of his element at seeing a girl for the first time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like how you see him a lot of the time when he's not in public. He's just kind of walking around in this ill-fitting shirt and sleep pants. Mm. And clearly he doesn't care that much about his appearance. He's kind of just some guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he has to be reminded by Alfred that he needs to properly dress up for a funeral. (laughs) I love that his introduction in this as Bruce was like him 
him in his messy eye makeup, writing melodramatically in his diary while listening to Nirvana, like diegetically listening to Nirvana. <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah, no notes. That was great. It is almost at times, I would say, on the edge of kind of self-parody. Reeves knows where the border is. Like, there is always going to be something heightened about Batman because it's a comic book premise. But there are certain moments where the diary that he keeps, which is the voiceover narration that we hear throughout the first stretch of the movie, but also the moment where he actually draws out everything onto the floor, which is one of those cinematic conventions that looks really cool, but no one ever does in real life. <laughs> you need to visualize the clues on screen for the audience. In terms of Pattinson's performance, I think, Emily, I really agree with you about the fact that it very much reminded me of the animated series take, which is interesting because obviously this is a young Bruce Wayne. The idea is that he's kind of still finding himself and he's still kind of finding his moral code in a certain way. And a lot of the other characters are not quite fully formed versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of interesting just to see that play out over the course of the movie where Batman has this very, very violent mythology in that he basically thinks of himself as the shadows, as a creature that preys on criminals and that's the way that he visualizes helping the city and i think over the course of the film he realizes that not only does his moral code need to become less binary in terms of good people bad people but also in terms of understanding that he can help in other ways that are perhaps more sincere than punching people in the face yeah i would agree with that i mean i think at the start of the film as you're saying he very much refers to himself as he is vengeance that's what he is he's basically like this violent force to mm. punish criminals whereas at the end of the film you know the thing that he does is helps mm. the people of gotham he wants his symbol to evolve in that direction yes. mm -hmm. i'm not necessarily a symbol of vengeance at least all the time but i am a symbol of hope that this city needs right now and i think that's incredible evolution of the character mm. who's, who's still trying to find what his role is supposed to be i loved that exact feeling right there that you're just talking about right at the very end of the apex of the movie and Batman has gone into a bunch of floodwaters to go and rescue a whole bunch of people and the first hand he takes is of a child mm. and then he leads this group of people out and it, it looks like all these people the shot is incredible oh yeah of them all coming together behind him and then people are being airlifted out and somebody grabs onto Batman's arm like this is all unspoken but that's the visual of I'm too scared mm. to go up and to be airlifted out of here but Batman kind of uses his hand to reassure this person no it's gonna be okay and you see that Batman's not just cool he legitimately did hero shit yes he was legitimately a hero at that moment it was incredible it was just really wild to see that this film actually cared about bruce wayne as a character and cared about batman mm. because it feels like a lot of the times in, in batman films he's kind of just there and the filmmakers are like yeah i care about the villains let's do the villains and then it's like batman's just there to stop the villains mm -hmm. and so seeing him actually get a lot of focus seeing him get an arc especially like scott said i don't want to just shit on other movies to compliment this one <laughs> <laughs> but like like coming off of the Zack Snyder Batman, which was very much into like that whole Frank Miller, I am the knight, I am darkness, I will beat up anyone who stands in my path. It was really nice to see this movie end with the idea of like, no, Batman has to exist for hope. He needs to represent goodness and stand as a symbol. And I was like, that's honestly really refreshing for a Batman movie that feels this dark and somber throughout most of it. Yeah. It's a very dark movie, but I would never say oppressively so. It always feels like it has a very fine balance on the tone. And I feel like in terms of 
as you were saying, previous incarnations of Batman feeling like they weren't really interested in him in the character. I feel like it's a frame I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, he's the least interesting character in this universe. And I go, wait, hang on, what? <laughs> no. I feel like that's definitely the impression I got from the Tim Burton movies. Maybe less so the original one, but definitely in Returns. You can tell that Burton has no interest in Batman whatsoever in that movie because he kind of disappears out of it for long stretches of the time. Mm-hmm. Even ones that were more focused on Bruce, I do feel like the Nolan ones kind of lose track of Bruce a little bit because Batman Begins is probably the closest that you could compare something like this to in that that one is an origin story. This one sort of is, but it isn't really. It kind of throws us in at the deep end for the most part. Mm-hmm. Again, a Batman that's kind of figuring out what to do and how he's doing it. I don't feel like the Nolan films were as interested in the character as this one is. I feel like the fact that it is the definite article Batman gives you a clear idea of how much it's actually truly invested in the character. Yeah. I did mention that Ben Affleck's take in Batman v Superman was kind of similar to this in certain respects because obviously, as I'm sure many listeners will know, this was originally conceived with Ben Affleck reprising his role as Batman and then over the course of development that shifted and Matt Reeves realised he wanted a younger take on the character but there were elements of this where I could see Affleck's interpretation of that character because Affleck's version, at least in Batman v Superman he was this kind of almost fascist version of Batman that was judged during execution and you know branding people, killing people but I feel like it doesn't work in that movie because Batman v Superman is trying to set up a franchise and having an old Batman that has lost the people around him and is jaded and is at the real end of his rope. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from that as a franchise? <laughs> <laughs> he was also just the worst detective. Yeah. He was just really bad at it. Whereas Robert Pattinson's Batman portrayal here, the way it's written, fantastic detective work. Mm-hmm. Really fantastic detective work, which I feel like is also part of the core of how Batman was designed to be in the beginning days. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Detective Comics. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate how much of this movie was a lot of detective work. Mm -hmm. There was some good fighting, there was some good action, but a lot of it was just trying to figure out these dang riddles. What's up with this guy, the Riddler? We gotta find out. Yeah. It was really great, and I I thought the way that he solved them all was really nice. I liked the way at the end, the fact that he missed the clue about the, like, carpet tool, Mm -hmm. just because he's, like, rich, and he doesn't know what those are, (laughs) (laughs) was a very funny detail to me. I'm like, oh, this is how you do something like this. Like, I don't know. Stuff like that was really cool. I feel like the detective is something that has been incredibly underexplored in a lot of live-action Batman media, and I feel mm-hmm. like that was something that the animated series did very well. You saw him do a lot of detective work. Even in Master of the Phantasm, there are moments where he's kind of figuring things out. I feel like you don't see a lot of that happen in previous versions of Batman. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the time, they do that kind of shortcut thing where he finds something and then he makes some sort of massive deductive leap because that's what the plot requires him to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I- <laughs> traced the bullet shell using my bullet shell machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I got the fingerprint from it. Yeah. I was about to mention the exact same thing in The Dark Knight. I really like The Dark Knight. It's probably one of my favourite Batman films. I do too. But that montage where he reassembles the bullet to generate a fingerprint which apparently the Joker had guessed that he was going to do. That is an absurd plot point. Yeah. <laughs> of course that's what he was going to do. Absolutely wild. Yeah. It is interesting to compare this film to The Dark Knight 
because they, they have a lot of similarities mm. in terms of how they're structured and stuff because they're both drawing from Long Halloween and, and both drawing from those sort of murder person on the loose tales. The Dark Knight's a great movie. I love it. But something that I liked about this one that kind of makes me think as a Batman film works better is that one of the issues I had with the Nolan Batman films is that after Batman Begins, they kind of just started to feel a bit like sterile mm. when it came to a lot of the gothic stuff, the weird stuff, the Batman stuff. With this, it was like, oh, I like that we're back in this like Gotham that's not a real place. It's not just Chicago. Mm. I'm glad that we're focusing on the fact that this guy is a weirdo and not a guy with an army tank that has this battle armor. They're like, no, he looks really weird in this movie. Every frame that Batman's in in this movie, he looks out of place. Yeah. Like he's not supposed to be with all these cops. I like the fact that because it's so early in his superhero life, as it were, there is an obvious distrust of him from literally everyone. Even at the very end of the movie, the mayoral elect, she hesitates to actually grab his hand at the end of the movie. And I think that they have good reason the cops distrust him because obviously half of them are corrupt. All of them think he's some kind of freak. <laughs> Let's be honest. Literally <laughs> one calls him that right in the shot of him. Yeah. I'm a little surprised that the moment where Batman passes out and then he wakes up and he's at the police headquarters or wherever he is, surrounded by all these police officers, at no point did they ever try to unmask him. Yes, I was thinking that. I, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> There's like a throwaway line that they're like about to or they're thinking about it. Yeah, they nearly do. Yeah. My headcanon is that Gordon's just standing there warding them off yeah. for like five hours. And just to add to the thought about how this feels like a Batman fictional world that is taking some more of the goofy elements as genuine. Mm. Something that I really like a lot is when Riddler comes on the TV and is like, you can call me Riddler. No one makes a joke about it. No. From then on, everyone calls him the Riddler. There's no goofs or gaffs about it. It's just like, all right, he's Riddler. We got to figure that out. <laughs> they just take it totally genuinely. That's something I noticed too, where um, Jim Gordon, like where they're looking at the photos that the Riddler leaked out and he's just like, yeah, that's the mayor and that's Penguin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh yeah, we know Penguin. That's a normal thing. It was a very interesting experience because this was like a very gritty, down to earth, quote, quote, realistic take on Batman. But also it was like, if Solomon Grundy busted through the wall mm -hmm. or Mr. Freeze just like <laughs> froze someone and left, I'd be like, yeah, that tracks. That feels right for this world at this point. <laughs> hey, was that Solomon Grundy? <laughs> <laughs> Again. It allows itself to take its own world seriously, which I think is what makes a lot of it so compelling to watch, actually. It builds a sense of tension, and it does have humour. There is very dark humour at times, oh, yeah. like the thumb drive. Uh, my favourite bit was when one of the cops was worried about Batman tampering with evidence, and Gordon was like, he's wearing gloves. <laughs> it's just a small little thing like that, where it's just like, uh, it's pretty good. That was one moment where my theatre, both times I saw it, just laughed, like, oh no, it's okay that this vigilante <laughs> that is not deputized is in this room because he is wearing gloves. <laughs> That's fine. It's so good. It allows itself to not have a defensive posture about itself. I feel like there's a lot of comic book media that go, yeah, comic books are weird, so we got to make turn this into a joke at some point, even though it, at some points it's distracting and takes away from the audience's immersion. It almost feels like it comes across as too afraid of jumping in at the deep end like this movie does. I know that some have called this kind of very self-serious, but I don't think that's the case. I would say some of the Snyder stuff, in my opinion, has felt very self-serious, whereas this one, I think, carries itself exactly right for the most part. There are a couple of little moments where I go, I don't know, but those are little fleeting moments. The two moments that kind of just slightly pulled me out of the movie is when Batman 
Batman no-sells an explosion to the face, <laughs> and then when he's escaping out of the police station, when he uses the glide suit, and he lands very hard on the ground. Go, if we're establishing that this is a Batman that's kind of grounded in real-world rules, um, <laughs> we probably shouldn't have moments where you go, yeah, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, the one thing I did like about the gliding scene and him immediately eating shit, I feel like other films would turn the eating shit into, like, a whole huge thing mm-hmm. where it'd be like, oh, no, and someone sees it, and they make, like, a snarky comment, or he says, ow, or something. Yeah. No, he just eats shit and then walks away. He kind of limps off, breathing really hard uh, down the back alley. Yeah. yeah. I did like that right before he does that, he opens the glider, and he obviously hesitates and takes a breath at that moment. There's a moment of humanity that creeps into his Batman when no one can really see it, but just that genuine moment of fear because yes. he's basically taking yeah. like a suicide dive, like, if this doesn't work, I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> it was the first time in a Batman film I think I felt the actual thrill from him gliding because it was like the first time where they made it into an actual thing of like, oh, maybe this won't work. Maybe this is something new. It's where other times it's just like, yeah, he can glide. He's just going to glide across this rooftop right now. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to think twice about it and he's not afraid of it because I guess he just does this all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that he decided to build a glide suit for himself, but this sort of indicates to me he has not actually used it all that often. No. Yeah. yeah. It kind of feels like this Bruce is kind of almost like a tinkerer. He has gadgets, but it feels like they're kind of little inventions that he's concocted himself. Obviously, the most prominently seen in the movie is the contact cameras that he places on his eyes oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and later places on Catwoman's eyes. That was kind of neat, actually, as the way of him recording crime scene information so that he can play it back later. It again goes into this idea that he's obsessed and he's, you know, just kind of going back through these horrendous crime scenes over and over again. We mentioned earlier about how the Batmobile felt like something that was kind of very homebrew. I feel like that was also in terms of the kind of Batman suit as well. You can tell that it's obviously assembled over like different parts and bits. The cowl isn't just one piece, it's several stitched together. I particularly like that the bat symbol is actually like a detachable Batarang. I don't think I've seen that in anything before, but that you think, oh, actually that makes a lot of sense. I also liked the little details, like the fact that he has like a bullet graze like on the helmet and like a bit of the like left eye is chipped out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's been doing this for a while and he's not going to immediately fix up the suit just because it gets a scuff on it. Mm -hmm. I also think about the chest emblem. I know before the movie came out, there's a big theory where he made it out of the gun that killed his parents or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure this film has debunked that because they do not know who killed the... the, I mean, they find out later. I mean, but even still, there's questions about it. Alfred's just like, I don't know, maybe it was an organized hit. Maybe it was just some random person on the street. Who knows? As much as I enjoy people doing fan theories, I kind of like that it was just a fun little detail, a fun tool that he had. Yeah. Yeah. It it also doesn't feel right that he would tamper with evidence of his parents, you know, murder if they still don't know who did it at that moment. Exactly. I also think that it's interesting that they obviously add the Wayne's murder into the plot and there is sort of the question of who did it or not, but it's never given an absolute answer. It's not like, say, the 1989 film where they graft the Joker into Batman's backstory to give him mm-hmm. a motivation because he already has enough of a personal motivation given what's going on anyway. In that sense, it respects that that is a driving force for him because it feels incomplete, because he can't resolve that, and that's why he's become who he is. It's a good way for him to connect with Catwoman throughout the film. Mm. He learns that, you know, Selina's father is Falcone. Mm. I feel like at first he has a lot of pity for her, like, oh, I'm sorry, your dad's a terrible person 
person. And then he starts learning about his own family, about like, oh, maybe my dad wasn't a great person either. Hard to know. And I think it allows them to connect on that level as well. The idea that the Waynes are not as perfect as Bruce likes to remember they are Mm -hmm. is key to why he starts to rejudge his moral position, I guess. I liked that when Alfred wakes up in the hospital and Bruce has been there because he has been concerned about Alfred, like, oh man, this horrible thing happened to him while I wasn't there. And then Alfred wakes up. And the first thing he does is just lay into Alfred before he even (laughs) says, oh God, thank God you're okay. He's like, why didn't you tell me, Alfred? (laughs) He's been sitting there for hours stewing. Why didn't you tell me my dad might have murdered a man? I know. Like, I actually was pretty happy, I think, with how they did the whole are Thomas and Martha Wayne, like, good or bad people thing? Because, like, we- we've seen that question come up a lot recently in Batman media. Like, Telltale Batman did it. Yes. Court of Owls did it. Yeah. yeah. Choker kind of did it, too. Because I know some people really hate that plot line because they really like Thomas and Martha Wayne. But I think this was a really good way to balance it. They're kind of not portrayed as, like, completely evil, amoral, no. selfish people, but, like, incredibly, incredibly misguided mm-hmm. with who they trust and, like, their faith in Gotham, which feels very in line with other portrayals of Thomas and Martha Wayne I've seen. It forces Batman to realize that people are actually flawed. Very few people are all good and very few people are all bad. Mm -hmm. He has to reckon with that to a certain extent with his relationship with a number of characters but particularly in his relationship with his own family but also with Catwoman who I think tests that. I do think that Panson's performance here is very very strong. I get a lot of satisfaction out of the fact that he's done so well in this role given that there was a lot of immediate backlash when he was cast. I said at the time that none of that was justified whatsoever. Right. I knew that he was going to do very well in this. It feels like a Batman that suits him down to the ground because it feels very tailored for him in the kind of roles that he's gravitated towards since he's left Twilight and I feel like there are some people who still hold on to Twilight like he's some sort of poster boy idol whereas I think he's spent the last decade or so working in independent film and done some strange and idiosyncratic syncratic movies mm-hmm. and I feel like if you've been following those this moving back into the mainstream space but playing those sort of characters shouldn't come as a surprise yeah I think it responds to him even as an actor even all the way back during Twilight days mm. was really unfair because one he's just an actor he's not the character and then two he had some really interesting words to say even while filming Twilight yeah. Yeah. about <laughs> Stephanie Meyer yeah. this lady's kind of weird but okay I'm gonna do this role now like he just did his job okay and then he moved on and then we get this and he's he's incredible even trying to compare the two things it's just not even a fair comparison not even remotely it's really weird that there's so much backlash when yeah he has been doing a lot of independent films but more importantly he spent the last 10 years establishing himself as a cryptid and just giving the weirdest Mm -hmm. fucking interviews and just being like (laughs) yeah i like for fun and it's like oh no that's perfect for batman you get it Yeah, I love him. He's great. Panson is very much a oddball, but it works in his favour because I feel like he brings a lot of that energy to Batman. He's kind of this very uncertain, frayed ball of emotions at times. And I feel like at the end of this movie, you can really see Batman as we properly know him actually take shape. We've mentioned a lot of previous incarnations of Batman, and I saw an interview with Matt Reeves the other day where he was talking about the fact that he pitched for this film, but he 
knew that obviously came with you know responsibility because there have been so many incarnations of batman if you're making a new one you don't just have to be good you have to be great there has to be a reason for it to exist and i think that the great thing about this latest version is that i feel like it has a meaningful right to exist that actually not only manages to understand the assignment but also passes with flying colors it could either be you have to do a really 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 great batman if you're going to do a new batman or it could be what we found out just today the day of our recording that keanu reeves is now batman in a cg animated film about superhero pets (laughs) (laughs) so uh it could be one of those two things i do feel like we wouldn't have this movie without those previous incarnations though we wouldn't necessarily have the batman without say nolan's films to come before it i know that some people are kind of tired of batman because we have had a lot of batman media in the last decade or so even though that's all largely been sort of like crossover stuff in the dc cinematic universe like batman v superman or justice league do we count lego batman it's a great movie but do we count it among the rest of the batman canon? i would sooner count not that that doesn't count but i would sooner count the batman arkham games somebody brought up telltale earlier as well and i think those are very very valid actually kind of talking in the way of the arkham games i don't know if this is the appropriate moment a cameo appears in this movie and his face looks very much like they took inspiration from the arkham games with like this guy's face is kind of gnarly we barely see it but it's kind of gnarly yeah in terms of live action adaptations i mean it's been a decade since dark knight rises it's kind of food for thought that it's been 17 years since batman begins which Mm. a very slow amount of time has passed since that to the 1989 batman film yeah i do feel like there is room for a different incarnation of the character and i feel like it's one that has a lot of room to grow in the future Mm -hmm. to your point about how there's just like a lot of batman and like how do you keep it from feeling batman fatigue my thing has always been like there's a whole bat family that Mm. really needs a lot of love Mm -hmm. and attention in this on screen and i hope that you know as it spins out into a franchise we can get some more of that and there's room for the weird stuff in this universe Mm. you know we were talking about how there's seems to be a teasing even more bad clown in this franchise i'm so upset (laughs) and that's fine i think maybe we've had enough of the bad clown but i think (laughs) if there was like a clay face would be fun i don't know if this universe is specifically set up for that just yet but Mm. i mean keep diving into the corruption angle and stuff with like horde of owls or what have you i would love to see like a mr freeze take in this universe there's a lot of fun stuff that you could do here that i hope continues to push the boundaries of what this world can offer yeah pattinson said he wanted to do court of owls the director said he wanted to do mr freeze all right i don't know if it'll ever actually go in that direction if they even make another one although if this is going the way it looks like it's tracking they're probably gonna make enough money for them to want to make another one within this series franchise yeah i guess i kind of got the vibe that they were also maybe setting up hush as well because they had the whole thing with like the reporter and oh, it might yeah. just be a reference to hush money but they make the words hush really really big mm. on the screen when they're talking about how the that's wayne family true. got this reporter killed yeah you're right you're right that feels like it's going somewhere that's also jeff Loeb, right so it's like he might take from that too yeah it would be nice to 
see a take on Batman that incorporates some of the more fantastical elements of comic books because obviously we've come off the Nolan Batman films where the universe of that film didn't really allow for something like that even when it was trying to reference the sort of Ra's al Ghul stuff it still found a way of bringing it into sort of like the self-mythology level rather than mm-hmm. embracing the kind of more abstract elements of it or the more kind of fanciful elements of it. That and Bane. Bane, I feel like, is that Bane? Yeah. I'm not yeah. really sure that's Bane. I would not be upset if they ever revisited Bane and got a little closer mm. to one of the other interpretations he has had yeah. in yeah. other media. I was talking to my friend about this and going over what villains I'd like to see in a sequel and I was like, yeah, Mr. Freeze could work really well and I think like all the stuff of society and corruption and damage and things like that and how it ruins the world. Poison Ivy could be really good here too and I was like, yeah. wait, am I just asking for a reboot of Batman and Robin? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. That'd be fun. Maybe not at the same time, but... <laughs> I just want somebody to put live-action Andrea Beaumont from Mask of the Phantasm <laughs> into a movie. I really just want that really badly. That would be great. I mean, it's almost here. Yeah, almost. <laughs> it does feel like there's a lot of that dynamic on screen with Catwoman as a character. Yeah, there's the whole concept of a potential romance. Mm. The person that Batman is romancing is saying, hey, well, these guys kind of effed up our lives. Well, then they deserve to pay. And then Batman's like, no, we do not do that. <laughs> that is very much a very Mask of the Phantasm sort of thing to do. But it just makes me sad that you gave the plot of Mask of the Phantasm to Catwoman instead of Andrea Beaumont. I also got Mask of the Phantasm vibes when at the end of the movie, they meet up in front of Selena's mom's gravesite. That's yes, Mask of the Phantasm yes. right there. Oh, yeah. That scene in Mask of the Phantasm at the graveyard, they sent me. Yeah, maybe they sent me. One of the things I really like about how they did the villains here, and it was also how it felt like Mask of the Phantasm, the way Mask of the Phantasm has the mob, and then it has the Phantasm, and then it has Joker, and they're kind of just all doing their thing. Mm. I like how this avoided that usual superhero trope of, okay, there's like three villains in this movie, and they're gonna all like have a moment where they meet up, and they're like, (laughs) let's team up and stop the Batman. And they go, cool, great. No, this is just like, yeah, the Penguin's here, Catwoman exists, and the Riddler's doing shit, and this is just what life in Gotham is like right now. Yeah. Until they decided to add in in that one scene. Yeah. Right at the end. I think maybe it's time, Kaylin, for you to talk about the fact that you, of course, saw this movie before virtually anyone else did. So did you want to talk a little bit about your test screening experience? Or uh, more sure, specifically, yeah. the thing that changed between the time you saw it and the time it was released? Yeah, sure. So like, and I made a big old Twitter thread about this, but for those of you who do not do the Twitters, which is probably a very smart thing to do, <laughs> my husband and I, I saw it at the Warner Brothers studio back lot. Like, they walk you through the back where they typically take people on tours that you usually have to pay money for. So it was kind of like a guided tour, but without people actually telling you, and this is where we shot the outside of this particular blah, blah, (laughs) blah. And ironically enough, like, there's a movie theater in that back lot, and you just think, oh, it's the outside for shooting purposes. No, you go in and it's a real movie theater. Why? which was pretty cool. This was on October 13th, and it was a few days before the DC Fandome event, where they had a second trailer. We also didn't know it was going to be Batman. We were just 
told it's Warner Brothers and it's an action thriller and we just kind of had to deduce is this Batman? This might be Batman. And we hear I hear this movie's almost three hours and we're like excuse me? <laughs> so we see it and they warn us okay there's some shots that are unfinished there's some digital effects that aren't there some of the streets once they get flooded the water's not in it so we're gonna add the water as a digital effect later or sometimes Batman's cape isn't there because sometimes his cape is actually digital and not a real cape mostly the big ending sequence of things getting flooded mm-hmm. and they're inside the stadium a lot of the action there's a lot of wire work you can see a lot of the wires aside from that it was a complete movie mm. it was incredible and like I said we walked away going oh my god is this the best Batman movie it's pretty close it might be I don't know we gotta see the finished thing to find out and so they give you these phones at the end they hide them under your seat and you pick them up and this is how they do audience testing and they ask you a bunch of questions like how did you like Robert Pattinson's portrayal blah 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 and they go down the list of all the different actors they ask you how did you like the pacing of this scene that scene the third act the finale blah blah blah. lots of really in-depth stuff and then you can also write in your own opinions my husband and I were like change nothing (laughs) this is great oh my god and I was feeling like as I'm seeing reviews this is basically the same movie I'm feeling pretty safe about it and then we start hearing rumors that other test audiences got a different version and then maybe the Joker's in there and I'm like oh please let that rumor be wrong please (laughs) let that rumor be wrong oh no so then we go and see it in IMAX on Thursday and I really feel like the ending is done very very well I don't feel like it needs sequel bait we know Falcone is dead we've got this shot that lingers on Penguin that almost kind of indicates oh Penguin might have like a comeuppance like he wasn't really a big threat here so you get the shot that lingers on Penguin and you're like yeah he might be another big threat and then we'll introduce some other guy along next to him next time maybe and then they decide to just slap in this Joker sequence inside Arkham next to the Riddler and I'm like wow why did you do that (laughs) it was so good up until that moment we saw the best version possible of this movie and then the final version took it down just just a little tick I'm so sad (laughs) that's frustrating definitely a scene that I would have personally have cut apparently it was a scene that was kind of in and out of the movie they weren't sure where they were going to include it I probably would have left out the Joker in that scene even though I think you only literally see a slither of his face I believe is played by Irish actor Barry Keoghan who uh, recently was in Eternals he's a very good actor I didn't recognise him in that one scene but I dare anyone to recognise him in that particular moment (laughs) (laughs) because the movie functions so well as a universe to itself I guess I probably wouldn't have minded a hint that Riddler might come back and team up with somebody else if it weren't for the fact we've had so much Joker media lately people have said oh I'm a little bit Batman out I'm definitely Jokered out <laughs> like do someone else yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I am a Joker fangirl or reformed Joker fangirl <laughs> I was really big into the character as a teenager I ran a Joker themed Facebook page I also did not like seeing the Joker teased here I was also like uh, the only way I think I would have liked it was if it was Joaquin Phoenix's just because it would have been funny for them to cross over <laughs> I was thinking that's what was gonna happen yeah I was reading an article on this because I was also like what happened here apparently it was like they had two Joker scenes it was this one and this other one that they were originally like not sure they're gonna include in the movie which was a scene early on where Batman visits Joker and Arkham to ask for advice on how to deal with Riddler I'm so glad that's not in there yeah, yeah. I am glad it's not in there either but if I had to pick between the two I would pick that one I would agree I would agree yeah because we've seen Joker sequel teases it was like how Batman Begins ended I was like mm. okay whatever at this point but it's like we've done 
done Joker, we've dealt with him, and now we have to consult him for advice. That's never been done in a live action film. I would like that scene if I have to choose between one of the two, mm. but I would have preferred literally anyone else to be in that jail cell, I think. <laughs> I was also reading some of these interviews where it was stated, oh, well, we had these two different versions of the movie, and we had a different test audience that did get the Joker scene, and we put it back in there, and then suddenly the ending tested even more positively. And he says, oh, well, I think it's not just because people really are excited about the Joker, but I think it really fit there so you could see that there is another threat in Gotham. It's the only reason why Batman is staying in Gotham. And I'm like, you are wrong? I don't know why you would say that. Yeah. People definitely just want to see the Joker. I definitely got the sensation that I mentioned this lingering shot of the Penguin, right? No, there's definitely another threat. The camera tells me it's him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's still around and there is still crime in this city. I don't know why you're acting like we teased the Joker and that means that Batman still has a reason to stay in Gotham. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, because even without just that shot of the penguin, the ending makes it very clear, like through dialogue and that they're showing it. Gotham's about to be a mess. It's flooded. I don't know if it's fully recovered yet, mm. like, because they're very vague as to, like, if it's still flooded or not. I think Catwoman even straight up says, yeah, there's going to be a lot of power grabs in the city. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of shit happening. That's as much of a sequel tease as I need. The director was like, oh, well, if I didn't put the Joker there, then Batman would have had no reason to stay in Gotham and he totally would have gone off with Catwoman. I'm like, really? Why do you say that? It's... That's no. literally not what the movie is saying at all <laughs> no, at the end. absolutely no. Yeah, and also it's like I was seeing stuff of like, oh, well, without this scene, there's no closure to the Riddler or no hint that he's ever going to come back and keep being a threat. I think that's pretty well conveyed by the fact that he's an Arkham Asylum yeah. the worst kept <laughs> prison in the century. Yeah, and like before that scene with the Joker, I genuinely thought that we had enough of a tease that Joker exists in this universe somewhere because the first people that Batman beats up are people in clown makeup. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, yeah, that's enough for me to sort of understand that there's at least some sort of weird clown threat in Gotham. I don't actually need the Joker himself to show up. I did feel like Joker being there with Riddler made it sort of nerf Riddler's importance. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. It just kind of nerfed your hype for like, man, this guy was really kind of exciting, actually, for not being an incredibly physical dude and Riddler himself even says, look at me, I'm not a big buff dude that can do any actual fighting, but I can really generate a lot of other clever ways to get stuff done. And I thought that was really, really great. And then him flipping out in Arkham, making friends with the Joker, and everybody's like, oh my god, it's the Joker! Really? It just nerfed his importance to me. I was watching the entire movie with the impression that Batman has faced other criminals before, but this is like his first super villain, like first like guy with a costume. Like I thought they were doing the zero year thing. The Riddler is the initial big, big bad. And so to have him immediately upstaged by like, no, the Joker exists in this universe and he's already been put away and he's Mm -hmm. probably going to do something worse. It's like, uh, okay, I guess. Sure. You can do that. (laughs) I feel like it also feels a bit redundant because there is a lot of Joker-esque characterization in this incarnation of the Riddler. We haven't had a live action Riddler since Jim Carrey played him in 1995. And suffice to say, this is an extremely different interpretation of the character than that one. And I wouldn't say that Carrey's interpretation of it was the most traditional version 
version of the Riddler. I really quite liked the film's take on the character overall up until it decides to take it back a notch at the very last moment. It definitely is an incarnation that is drawing closely to contemporary fears of sort of like right-wing terrorism and militias and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which definitely feels very topical, but in a way that actually makes sense. Sure. It feels like it's involved in this world. Yeah, I liked the part where he made like a little YouTube video and was like, hey everyone, <laughs> thanks for watching. Thanks for the views. Your comments have been nice. 500 subscribers! Yeah, <laughs> yeah he has so many followers. <laughs> so helpful. One of the things that I thought was really, really interesting was when he was in Arkham and, and Batman was interrogating him, he kept saying like, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne, and Batman's like, oh no, does he know my secret identity? And Riddler's like, mm, that's the one we couldn't get, right? We almost got them all. Batman looks over like, oh shit, really? <laughs> <laughs> he uncovered so much about Gotham. He could have absolutely figured out Batman's identity if he wanted to, but he saw Batman as someone he was working with, not against. That's what he was saying about how like, I'm not a very strong person. I have my brain, but you are, and you helped me get Falcone. And I thank you for that. Being almost like super genuine, like, mm. yeah, me and Batman. Yeah. yeah. We're on the same team here a little bit. There's about two seconds where you feel sorry for him. Like, oh no, his idol just crushed his dreams. <laughs> like, no, yeah. you and I are nothing alike. I'm never going to be working with you. And then <laughs> Riddler's just, he's so sad. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, this poor guy. Wait a minute. He's a terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> it's the intro to Incredibles. Yeah. Just <laughs> with Batman and Riddler. It's great. I love that twist. I thought, oh, that makes sense. I didn't think of it while I was watching the film. Of, oh yeah, Riddler thinks Batman's an ally. But then when I rewatched it, I was like, no, yeah, he's not actually threatening Batman at any moment. Yeah. He keeps leaving him all this stuff to be like, this is for you. Thank you for helping me. Here's my <laughs> next note to you, bud. Yeah. I think the thing I really appreciated about the way Paul Dano played him, it was very clearly an attempt to do to Riddler like the Heath Ledger Joker style thing. Mm. Do like, this is the big, iconic, batshit Batman villain with a great performance. We've seen attempts to Heath Ledger other comic book villains like Lex Luthor and like Jared Leto's Joker. I think this one actually worked out the best because Paul Dano actually made choices and stuck to them and was like a threat throughout, Mm -hmm. even if he's mostly seen through like cell phone footage. It's actually surprising how little the Riddler is actually in the movie but he feels like such a presence. And I really thought the first time seeing it, oh, well, well, here's the end of the movie. They got the Riddler. Mm-hmm. And then he still had a plan after that. That was really, really good. Yeah, that's that seven influence coming into it. I felt like, yeah, yeah we caught the murderer. He's like, oh, but I have like one more plan. My husband is trying to share a set of ideas that suggests Riddler had a Patreon that allowed for early access to crimes before he did them <laughs> at the $10 level. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. He has a pledge-based system. Mm-hmm. Subscribe now for more murders. <laughs> well, yeah, because you couldn't watch that last video unless you went to this password-protected video, yeah. which clearly you could only get the password by subscribing at a certain level. <laughs> I was really curious what website he was uploading these things on. Like, if it was his own. There's no way this is a YouTube. There's no way YouTube no. would be like, all right, let's just have the Riddler YouTube account. Vimeo for terrorism. <laughs> what I did find interesting about Riddler and the way that he sees himself in Batman is, again, it goes back to this idea of Batman having to test his moral code and having to reevaluate it in that he starts out the movie declaring, I am vengeance, and at the end of of the movie, one of Riddler's followers literally declares the same thing back at him. And it's this recurring theme through the film that Batman's approach is not actually helping Gotham, it 
it's more driving people into further extremism in response in the same kind of volatile anger like Riddler's determination to do what he does comes from the fact that he's found this corruption but it's twisted him in a similar but different way to Bruce's own pain Mm -hmm. so in that kind of way there is a lot of similarity and duality there but Mm -hmm. Batman carries himself with a different moral code and there is moments where they make a point of talking about the fact that Batman doesn't carry guns and talks about the idea of there is this line where you cross and you become the villain that you're fighting against Riddler is that character that he is potentially what Batman Mm -hmm. could have been a few steps over that line to the folks who have seen the movie multiple times the Riddler's follower who says I am vengeance to Batman at the end is that the same guy that he saw at the funeral I was thinking that at the time because I felt like that would have made sense given the way they lingered on that guy I think it might have been yeah I believe so that's my interpretation like his face is really badly beaten yes because I was wondering in the funeral scene why they were focusing on this guy I was like is that Joe Chill or something who is this man that Bruce is focusing on I think it's just someone who wants to see some sort of change some sort of actual justice and finds it in the twisted way that Riddler has gotten people on his side Mm -hmm. that's what maybe makes Batman take a step back and it's like oh yeah this is not working I have gone too far yeah and I like how that moment is followed up with an actual baptism thing of Mm. him having to drown himself and immerse himself in water and rise up and save people oh yeah yeah. see there's a lot going on this movie there is a lot of metaphor (laughs) (laughs) doesn't Catwoman playfully call Batman vengeance almost like in a mocking way like oh that's the name you call yourself yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think Penguin does it too at one point where he's just like hey vengeance come on in yeah Yeah. that's right like no one takes him seriously about this going back to this idea of the Riddler kind of having these followers very clearly based on far right extremists this idea that Gotham as a city has kind of fostered this environment for a long long time and I think you can see that in just the way that Gotham looks throughout the entire movie Emily you were mentioning how much Gotham felt like an actual place in this movie which I feel like is another really strong reason why it works as a noir is that you get that sense of location there which a lot of Batman media doesn't do a great job of Mm -hmm. the Nolan films after the first film the sequels just kind of go um Chicago (laughs) Mm -hmm. whereas I feel like this the sort of urban decay is very much on display at certain points in the movie you can see the campaign ads for Thomas Wayne and renewal almost being like this cruel broken promise literally scattered everywhere across the city Mm -hmm. Thomas Wayne's idea of this charitable foundation actually it's been horrendously corrupted and it's just become this pool for criminals to just take even more money out of the city I'm definitely not the first person to say this about this film but like that aspect of it with the renewal fund is basically the answer to everyone who is like Batman could do more good if he just donated his money to good causes and this film is like sure but also that gets corrupted as well because this city is so corrupt yes right it's like corrupt all the way down to the point where these things are supposed to be good charities that actually help out the city are not because crime has such a hold on this place that there needs to be someone like Batman to step in I feel like you even see that with the fact that they mention how there are two major families in Gotham there are the Waynes and there are the Arkhams (laughs) yeah (laughs) I feel like I've never really seen that in a film incarnation before this idea that oh that's where Arkham comes from there's this other rich family and they decide to open up this mental institution yeah yeah there you go I thought that was kind of clever as a touch I think also what was interesting about that is that there is an obvious class dynamic going on in that there is the rich and then there is the 
criminals and then there's everyone else. Catwoman very much singles out the fact in dialogue there are rich, privileged white people yeah. and singling out the Waynes, mentioning how they try to help but they don't actually help in any real way. They just kind of furnish their own egos. Because it's not the first time that those kind of things have been talked about in a Batman movie but I feel like it's the first time it's been very obviously stated as such. She had a great line about whoever you are you must have grown up rich. Yeah. yeah, I like that because Batman's being like, why were you dealing drugs for the mob and working with Penguin and all this stuff? You had a choice. You made a bad one. Uh-huh. And she's just like, no, I didn't have a choice. What are you talking about? Yeah. The option to even have a choice is such a privileged thing to say. Yes. And knowing that it's Bruce Wayne under there, the wealthiest person in town is like, yeah, okay, that makes sense that he would think that way. And I think it's important because you go back into like a lot of the negative stereotypes about Batman. Like, oh, he just beats up poor people or like mentally not okay people. I think it's important to acknowledge here of like, yeah, there's sometimes crime that is done because people are just in a hard situation. Mm -hmm. And it's important that Batman understands that. Yes, he has to come to learn that himself. There are people that become morally compromised because of their situation and not through any active desire to do that. That there is a moral grey that encompasses a lot of the city that he is supposedly trying to help. Mm -hmm. It's also comments on the fact that, you know, in order to be Batman, you have to come from an inherently privileged position. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Riddler's <laughs> a, such a great foil for that in this movie because you get Batman, you get Bruce Wayne who became an orphan but still has so much money and even just his own personal servant in, in Alfred, if you want to look at it that way. And then you have Riddler who reveals he grew up as an orphan and had nothing. Yeah. And the city did nothing for him. Yeah. It's like two sides of the same coin. Most people are not going to be in Bruce Wayne's shoes in that case. Like mm -hmm. almost nobody is going to be. And so you, you get the two of them, they're back and forth about how they handled that growing up an orphan and you sort of see that it helps Bruce sort of take his own life into perspective a little bit better. I like how the parallels even extend to the point where towards the end of the film, Batman also finds Riddler's diary yeah. full of melodramatic monologuing about how corrupt the city is mm -hmm. and his own little conspiracy theory pin board. And it's like, yeah, no, these are two sides of the same coin. Yep. <laughs> that dynamic of Batman seeing a lot of himself in the villains, I mean, that's something that is a very common trope with the dynamic between Batman and the Joker, but it makes sense here thematically. I feel like there's a very rich vein of commentary on the way that Batman approaches himself. I guess the way of describing the theme of this movie is Bruce Wayne deciding what kind of hero he has to be, or what kind of function does he need to actually have in Gotham to institute the change that he wants to make. Mm -hmm. We've talked about Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman. I thought that she was really great in this movie. I thought she was fantastic yeah oh yeah she was great her chemistry with pattinson mm. was just incredible and i loved how she had that very dominating personality to where it's just like oh yeah she's in the frame you want to pay attention to her she is mm. currently leading the scene yeah even when batman's using her as bait to get info on people in the club again going back to this idea that catwoman is also representing a kind of duality there it feels like she has this kind of her own vigilante crusade which is very much in keeping with the dynamic of the two characters at least classically i think that we've had a lot of very strong live action incarnations of catwoman in the past and hathaway in dark knight rises i'm not a huge fan of that movie but i think she does well in that film michelle pfeiffer is great in batman returns but that's a very different incarnation of the character than, yeah. than the usual incarnation that's a very singular version of that character i think that zoe kravitz is probably the closest i've seen to anyone that really captures catwoman live action on film I think she really got it. 
completely. This is Halle Berry erasure. I had a read of her character that really felt like she might have been coded as bi. Yeah. In fact, apparently she kind of played it that way mm. as she read it on the page. Although then the director comes and is like, no, it was supposed to be like a mother-daughter sort of situation as she's trying to protect her friend or something like that. And I'm like, maybe? But also it would be kind of cool if you just maybe said maybe she's bi? I don't know. For sure. I read it that way when I watched it. I was yeah. like, they definitely have a deeper relationship than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, she uses the same pet name, Baby, for Bruce after kissing him. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, no. Zoe at least knows what she's doing there. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. I think that there is a tremendous amount of sexual tension in every single scene that Catwoman appears in. There are moments where Bruce almost seems to be resisting his own lust. He clearly seems to be seeing a lot of himself in her to a certain extent, but then she kind of comes again from a different position because she's someone that has lived on the streets, unlike Bruce. He may live in a cave, but he also lives in a tower. Mm-hmm. There is that irony there of the fact that she is directly attacking him to his face, but completely unaware of it. And I feel like the movie mines the tension of their relationship to its fullest effect, at least since the animated series. Mm-hmm. No, I like how they're both just very clearly fascinated by each other mm-hmm. and just kind of try to want to understand the other person. Mm-hmm. It's very compelling to watch because you can tell Bruce just does not understand this worldview, does not understand why this woman's like this. Mm. And she's just like, why are you such a dick? Like, what is your goal here? <laughs> yeah, the way that he's trying to navigate her through the club and the way that she takes control of that situation back from him, mm-hmm. she is very clearly uncomfortable talking to Peter Sarsgaard's DA, who is clearly implied to be a bit of a lecherous creep. She's forced to have that conversation, but then she manages to steer it into trying to find out about her friend and then eventually takes out the equipment, which means that Bruce is kind of cut out of the situation. Mm -hmm. There is a definite power dynamic going on within that relationship. The two characters, they kind of draw each other back at different moments in the movie. There is that attempt where she tries to kill her father. Batman has to stop her from doing that to make sure that he can actually solve the case at hand, but also because he cares about her. He actually does care about her enough to stop her from doing something that could be incredibly self-destructive. She's not a murderer, but she could very well become one in her own rage, and you see that happen right at the end of the movie, coming to his rescue at the end of it when he finds himself in jeopardy. When she gets attacked at the very end of the movie, he also is overcome by rage, literally injecting himself with adrenaline to the point where he has to be pulled off by Gordon and his men from killing that man. He's been that man to death. He would have killed him. Right. The moment I knew that their relationship was going to be handled well and that I was really going to enjoy it was that first vault stealing scene. Mm. Not just because they had that really high tense love fighting moment, Mm -hmm. but also you have that thing where he's interrogating her and then the police comes in and he just like carries her away. And then he's like, why did you kill the mayor? And she's like, I didn't. Here's what happened. And he's just immediately like, okay, well, let's work together and figure out what happened then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's like, one, this Batman isn't a huge, unreasonable asshole. Like he is willing to listen to someone else and give them a chance. But two, these characters have some sense of trust in each other, even if they just met. Mm. I think that's very important that one, he would be like, okay, yeah, I believe you. Let's go figure this out together. And she would be like, yeah, come back to my place, man who was watching me and following me. Yeah. (laughs) 
Again, one of those details that harkens back to duality in the relationships in this movie. When Batman first spies on Catwoman, I suddenly realised that the first shot we technically see of the Riddler in this movie Mm -hmm. is him watching the mayor through binoculars. The fact that you have those kind of two images linked through the movie, that sense of voyeurism, again, there's that commonality between the two characters. Talking about the runtime, though, it actually didn't feel like a three-hour-long movie to me. I mean, it kind of did and that it was oh Mm. a lot is happening it only felt that long on my bladder and that's about it yes the first time i saw it was like i don't know why i got a drink i really have to go to the restroom (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was quite proud of myself in that i actually sat through all of this movie and i didn't actually use the loo at any point during it (laughs) i actually got all the way through it well done and i think that tells you right there exactly what you need to know about the film's pacing and the way that storytelling works in that there is not a beat in this movie that I would have cut except for that aforementioned Joker section we've talked about at the end right it feels like everything in this movie is exactly where it needs to be everything flows into each other very organically every scene has a purpose it's so confidently directed by Reeves and on a storytelling level because the detective and investive elements work so strongly it keeps you fully engaged in the action the downside of course is that if you do really need to go to the loo uh there's not very many moments you can leave that you will miss something (laughs) yeah yeah i've seen a lot of debate over the final act of it whether or not that was when it started to drag or if that was needed like all the stuff of the vans and the flooding and i kind of get that because it looks like the movie's gonna end and it's like no we have 30 minutes left yeah but it didn't bug me yeah especially on my second watch i was definitely torn about it i was fine with riddler having this final act that he was going to do even though he was caught that felt nice to me that was fun i agree but i think the thing that made me torn about it on some levels i like it at some levels i don't like it just the, the beating up the random riddler thugs like i get it you know if it ties back into the earlier scene where that guy is talking to bruce wayne like it makes sense hmm. but at the same time i'm like i don't know i'd rather just see him saving people than fighting people but i do think that maybe they felt like they needed some more punchy things to happen so i'm torn on it i don't hate it i don't love it it did feel like it was maybe dragging a little bit for me mm-hmm. i feel like the action stuff it definitely definitely feels like at the end of the movie that they needed to have this big massive beat that they needed to end on but i think as far as navigating that i think they did the best possible job because even though as you mentioned scott there is a lot of like punchy stuff it culminates in the ending of the movie in that batman reaches this most absolute point yeah and then he forced himself to pull himself back from the brink and then save those people i feel like it, it is necessary to actually have that beat in the movie yeah no yeah i think i will feel different differently on a on a second watch Mm. but i just i just know that the first time i watched it i just felt like everything else leading up to that moment was almost perfect for me and that felt maybe a little less so but that's only just because everything before that happened was just so good and so fun that's true like i said i think it sat better on the second watch not to be like oh this movie is great if you watch it more than once just in that sense of once you know that it's coming because that first time i was watching it it was like okay i really have to pee i thought this was going to end 15 minutes ago Mm -hmm. how long is this fight going to go on how long is this final act going to go on? How many ending scenes are we going to get? Mm-hmm. And then like once you know exactly what it is, you realize, oh, okay, the fight isn't as long as I thought it is. It wraps up pretty succinctly. And I also, I think I like it as, you know, the movie sets up at the beginning. Batman has to choose his targets carefully. Who's he going to be? What's he going to do? And I like the idea that this is setting up, no, this Batman isn't going to be the type that beats up random people stealing purses mm. on the side of the road. He needs an actual city-destroying threat to establish, like, yeah. if he's going to beat up anyone, he's going to beat up these weirdos trying to shoot people. Mm-hmm. There was 
was a moment where I had to check my phone because I haven't repaired my watch yet. <laughs> I did briefly check us around the, the scene with Alfred in hospital just to purely get a sense of, okay, how far deep are we into the movie? Will I have to actually duck out at some point? Right, right. I can always tell when I'm fully engaged in a movie because sometimes you can get a bit distracted or sometimes you go, maybe I should, you know, pop out for a moment. But luckily mm. managed to avoid that instinct just in the same way I managed to avoid that instinct during No Way Home. I remember thinking, it looks like there's a bit of a lonely action here. Maybe I should... Oh, all the things are happening here. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. oh I'm going to stay, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. <laughs> that would have been the worst possible moment. Never really a good time for it. Yeah. This is one of those things that might sound like a complaint. It was one of those where I was watching the movie and I was like, I can't tell if I've been watching it for five minutes or five hours. Yeah. I'm just so engrossed right now. I don't know what time is at the moment. I don't know how long the scene is going on. <laughs> yeah, it's so perfectly immersive and well-paced. And I mean this as a compliment. It does feel like the movie's length makes it feel like you're binge-watching a miniseries, almost. Once it does get to home video release or HBO Max or whatever, you really could kind of take it in, like, half-hour chunks and do that six times. (laughs) Got a six-episode miniseries. I especially think because you're following Riddler's all these different clues, all these different victims, Mm. and that feels like it's cut up into different sections, and then you've got all the stuff with Penguin and Falcone. It almost feels like a comic book in that sense, where, like, you have these individual issues that tie up into one bigger arc. That was kind of my vibe, is that it felt like, not just reading a comic book, but, like, when you pick up, like, a trade paperback of, like, Batman or something, Mm -hmm. okay, there's not a continuity that you need to follow. You're just thrown into the story. Here's Batman, here's Gordon, here's Gotham. Here's just Mm -hmm. one long, focused story. Mm. I think that was one of the things I really liked about it, was just, minus the Joker teasing, it felt like its own movie that was contained and that existed for the sake of being an actual good story that it wanted to tell on its own. Yeah, I would absolutely agree because I feel like that sets this movie apart in a lot of ways, especially in the current comic book landscape where a lot of the movie adaptations are very cross-pollinated with each other. You know, you've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you've got No Way Home, which is kind of linking with the previous iterations of the character and things like that, whereas this is very much a movie onto itself for the most part and that really works for it. And I think honestly that has worked a lot in DC's favour when it comes to their film adaptations because if we're thinking back about five, six, seven years ago they were trying to force the Marvel Cinematic Universe thing onto their movies with you know Batman v Superman and Justice League it didn't feel earned they rushed their way through it exactly but it kind of ended up being the best thing possible because now it has meant that the DC films have had the freedom to be their own identities like you look at Birds of Prey or Shazam they all feel like they're not kind of building towards this interconnected universe they feel like they're trying to tell their own kind of unique different takes on stories with different tones and different characteristics Mm -hmm. and that gives them an identity that makes them feel unique from the Marvel Cinematic Universe so the fact that it's not connected to Ben Affleck's version of Batman has also been a huge benefit to that as well Mm -hmm. yeah you know of course Joker which you know I'm not the biggest fan of Joker but again that movie has the freedom to exist because of the fact that you know the whole cinematic universe plan went so badly in the first place (laughs) yeah reminds me of that era for the Fox X-Men films when they were just like yeah we don't really know like I guess we'll have a main continuity but also it's like let's do a Deadpool over here let's do a Logan over here whatever it's fine Mm -hmm. no I kind of like that because it's very refreshing I've really enjoyed the last few DC films Mm -hmm. which has been really nice after their early DCEU stuff of me just constantly leaving disappointed and upset (laughs) yeah every time and their CG always kind of looked like it was done in the Unreal Engine (laughs) yeah so what this movie needed was Riddler made like a 
beam that goes into the sky. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one thing we're missing, really. Like, to be honest, I, like, walked out of there real sad. I was like, where's the beam in the sky? <laughs> <laughs> I think there needs to be, like, a big, bulky CGI villain. Like, maybe, oh, can we set up, like, Darkseid? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> if the twist reveals that Riddler has been Clayface the whole time, that would be fun. And then it's just Batman versus a big blob. I mean, it worked once before. They can do it again. It worked once. And it was pretty good that one time. Yeah. Speaking of other villains in the movie, we got to talk about Colin Farrell as Penguin, or Oz, as he's commonly referred to throughout this movie. He's not a huge part of the film, but Colin Farrell is fantastic. The man's just having fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. The man is just yeah. eating it up, and it is a blast every second he's on screen. I saw a comment that was like, you could totally cut Penguin from this movie, and they should have. And I'm like, what are you talking about? No, you couldn't. One, because he's <laughs> no. too important to the plot. Two, why would you do that? Why would you take my fun from me? Yeah. <laughs> they got him all tied up. They're like, all right, what do you think about these photos right here? Ah, oh, come on. Don't show those to me. What are you doing? I like his little penguin waddle as he's trying to get away. Yeah, I was about to say. I felt like that was very deliberate. Yeah. Get it? Because he's a penguin, but we got to give him a reason to actually waddle. Yeah. He didn't eat enough fish heads or exude enough black sludge from his mouth, <laughs> which was a very big issue I found with this version of Penguin, but otherwise it was perfect. <laughs> it broke my immersion. It took me out of it. But other than that, I do love the makeup they've got Colin Farrell in because he is so unrecognizable for the most part until he starts speaking and then you immediately go, yeah, that's Colin Farrell because he's really enjoying just hamming up the scenery. Yeah, I'd forgotten it was him. Yeah. He does have this kind of pointed nose that kind of gives you that sense of the character right there. Yeah. He has got those kind of subtle characteristics, but they don't overplay them. They don't have this kind of ridiculous thing. It's just sort of this mocking thing of, oh, he wants to be this big time player, but everyone knows that he's a subordinate and he gets no real respect. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you think he started calling himself Penguin in this universe or is that a name people gave to him that just stuck? Oh, that's almost certainly derisive. Yeah. If it was at the Iceberg Lounge and he's some guy who's a real big part of it, I get the sensation that somebody was like, oh, the Iceberg Lounge, huh? What does that make you, a penguin? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was Falcone who said yeah. it. <laughs> and he couldn't say no because then he'd get killed. <laughs> yeah. Colin Farrell is having so much fun in this role, which is great. The last time he appeared in a comic book movie was playing Bullseye in Daredevil and oh my God. in that movie he was chewing on the scenery mighty royally. Yeah. Steam the show from everyone in that film as well and pretty much does the same thing here. It's a restrained kind of scenery chewing. He's not coming in strong like Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey, you know, like a tornado. Yeah. He fits in. It makes sense and it's just a joy. His introduction, it's low-key while also being very hammy because he just shows up but it's also like, hey, come on, I'm a little birthday boy. What did you do and don't beat me up like it's fine <laughs> easy easy what am i the only one who knows spanish around here that's the worst spanish i ever heard <laughs> that was that was the one that got me of like does batman just not know spanish i mean again privilege <laughs> again yeah. privilege yeah i very much liked that whole twist of just the url thing yes and then his weird little chat messages to riddler where he's like yeah is it penguin and he's just like interesting yeah i'm gonna have to give you a bit more clues i guess kind of on the wrong track there <laughs> <laughs> like a professor giving notes to a paper. Hmm. I see how you got to that point. So apparently you can actually go to that website and then type with the Riddler and they give you a bunch of riddles. And I don't actually know what happens when you solve them, but that's a thing you can do. I do feel like the way that Riddler kind of talks in this almost sanctimonious tone very much reminded me of James Spader at times. Yeah, but then I do love that he turns off the voice filter for his own little personal subscriber video message. <laughs> <laughs> that was one slightly different thing about 
about the test screening that I did for that one. He says the exact same lines, but at one moment he actually takes his mask off for them. Oh, interesting. That's a decision they did not keep. It's otherwise exactly the same. I just thought that was an interesting slight change. I can understand why they did that, because obviously if he's to such an extent where he's hiding his identity behind a mask the whole time, it would be a rather daft thing for him to do to reveal himself to his audience. Mm. That could be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you gotta have at least 100,000 before you do a face reveal. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the face reveal special. I did think it was interesting the way that Alfred was characterized in this movie. Andy Serkis, of course, reteaming with Matt Reeves after the Planet of the Apes sequels. And, of course, Andy Serkis is, as always, fantastic. But it's, again, a different kind of Alfred than we've seen previously. Michael Goth was fantastic in the Burton series of films. Michael Caine was great in his incarnation. And even Jeremy Irons wasn't too bad in the Snyder films. I kind of liked Jeremy Irons. I thought he was fun. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was alright. I did like that he provided a little bit of levity to those movies that desperately needed something like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into Jeremy Irons as Alfred until I saw the Snyder cut and then I was like, mm. oh, I like this guy. He just sits around working on classic cars and being snarky. Yeah, being very particular about his tea. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, he does no actual butler work. He's just there. Mm-hmm. No, but I like Andy circus he was good yeah i feel like circus's version of the character does have some elements of michael Caine's, but it's a much younger alfred again Mm -hmm. there was this implication that he was kind of a soldier because his face is scarred up there is a line that he gives that suggests that he trained bruce a little in some sort of fighting i think that's done in in the tv series gotham yeah they're giving alfred the aunt may treatment where every iteration is going to be younger and hotter (laughs) yeah and i'm okay with it because andy circus is good to look at I think. (laughs) Yeah. I liked how he was involved with the Batman operations without just being reduced to like guy in the chair. Yeah. That he was just like, no, I'm going to help you with these riddles while I do my crossword puzzle. Yeah. I thought that was really cute, actually. Yeah. There's a throwaway line where he mentions that he was in the circus and the circus is actually code for British intelligence. So it kind of implies that he was a spy or some relation to that, which I thought was interesting, which explains why he's a code cracker in that respect. I do believe that's been addressed in other Alfred media. Yeah, I will say that completely eclipsed my mind that it was a code word. I thought he was either just fucking with Bruce or it was like an actual circus. (laughs) (laughs) Same. I had no idea. I was like, oh my god, Easter egg. This is a Dick Grayson reference. Oh my god. (gasps) Oh no, that was my uh, I've seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy thing coming on to my my head. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of like a smiley type. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you think there's going to be like clickbait videos that are is the mayor's son robin five pieces of evidence a hundred percent who wants to completely misread this <laughs> mm-hmm. well there's already people talking about how the adrenaline he pumps himself with at the end is that's venom that's bane's venom so yeah. i don't know <laughs> if that is venom like sure i don't think it is so venom is just adrenaline now people are like it was green so that's something it was one of those true i can't tell if the liquid's green or the vial is yeah green, you exactly know? i don't need to know exactly what it is i just need to know he injects it in himself and then gets really angry (laughs) that's all i need to know again i think this is the first time in a batman film at least where alfred has actually been the subject of a proper attack i mean in batman forever he does get knocked out by the riddler that rather pales in comparison to here where he very nearly gets himself blown up intercepting a mail bomb yeah considering that he clearly had an intelligence and military background i think 
the fact that it came with a fireproof envelope would have been more than enough <laughs> for him to work out beforehand that that was a bomb before seeing the blinky light at the bottom of it. Well, like, even the fact that it's like the writing on the outside was the exact same as the Riddler writing. Yeah. You think he'd be like, all right, let's put this under a microscope first and foremost. Mm-hmm. If you see fireproof on the edge of an envelope that just came out of a package, get the fuck out of here. Incredible that <laughs> yeah. it actually made it through the US Postal Service at all in the first place. Yeah. Well, even just like, did the Waynes have someone sorting through their mail that's not Alfred? Because I imagine they get a lot of letters to their address. The dynamic between Alfred and Bruce here is a little bit different in that there is that father-son dynamic here, but it's to a dysfunctional extent because Bruce, he kind of wants to be tackling this on his own for the most part. It almost feels like Alfred is in his world begrudgingly and he's the one that's trying to kind of pull him back somewhat, but it's falling on deaf ears. After Alfred gets attacked, Batman realises, no, he does actually care for him. He doesn't want to see him hurt and he begins to appreciate, no, he is my connection to my parents. He is my surrogate parent. He, you know, is someone that I should be listening to and be protecting. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, you know, especially that whole monologue where he's like, oh, I didn't know I would feel that fear again of Mm. losing someone close to me. It's the idea of saying, no, I guess you are like my dad without having to say the line of, no, you're not exactly my father, but you're like a father to me. Without having to say that, I thought it was phrased really, really well. And I also just love the little touches there, obviously like the cufflink scene, but like that first scene between Bruce and Alfred where the two argue and he storms off and Alfred just stands by and he sees that Bruce was looking at the mayor's son. His eyes water up and it's like, oh yeah, Alfred gets this. Yeah. He understands everything that's going on. I think that was just like a nice little moment to understand that these two do empathize with each other without it being like put strictly through dialogue. I feel like the scene in the hospital, which is I believe the last time Circus is seen in the movie, is a really powerfully played scene between the two because of the fact, obviously there's the relations about the family's past, but also because we get the understanding that Alfred, he carries the same kind of guilt that Bruce does, even if he doesn't harness it in the same way that Bruce does. He understands that pain, and I feel like they come to that understanding. And again, going back to this idea that this is the incarnation of the character in live action that most understands Bruce, I feel like the relationship between Bruce and Alfred is so critical to why the character has endured so much. Again, going back to Batman Master the Phantasm, it evokes that scene at the end of that movie where Alfred talks to him and says, you know, violence blackens the soul, and I always feared that you would become that which you chased after. That is the same sort of dynamic that is happening in this movie, that Bruce is very much on the edge of becoming that, and Alfred is the one that's trying to bring him back. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is important to understand about Batman. He does have a limit. He is an extreme character, but there is a humanity to him, and I feel like you see that in a lot of this movie. You mentioned their relationship in Mask of the Phantasm, and I do think it comes real close to that relationship because I remember a line in Mask of the Phantasm Mm -hmm. where Batman's about to take off in the Batmobile and he's like you just think you know everything about me don't you Alfred? Alfred's like I diapered your bottom sir I bloody well ought to (laughs) and Batman's just like well you're wrong and he takes (laughs) off like a child. Really I felt like the dynamics here weren't that far off. (laughs) Stop trying to parent me. Cut it out and then when Alfred actually gets hurt then he's like, oh no, this would make me really sad if I lost him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that throwaway line where Bruce is talking to the nurse right after Alfred's been admitted in the hospital right after the attack. Mm. And she's like, is there any next of kin besides you we should contact? And he's just like, no, there's not. Really hammering home, these two people at this point really only have each other, yeah. which I think is really powerful. I will say 
the scene where Bruce is sitting by Alfred's bed waiting for him to wake up, the first place my mind went to is that very similar scene in Joker where Mm. it's like, also, I just found out bad shit about my family and now I'm going to wake you up. And I was like, this isn't going to happen, but I'm just imagining Bruce Wayne (laughs) smothering Alfred with a pillow right now. (laughs) I think it said something about how unpredictable the movie was is that I genuinely thought for a brief moment they might actually kill off Alfred, (laughs) which is a rare thing to say. I genuinely thought they might actually do that. Mm -hmm. It felt a lot like No Way Home with the Aunt May stuff in that moment where it's just like, I could see this being the moment Alfred kicks it and this being like the big thing. Yeah. I'm glad he didn't. I want more of him. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. I wouldn't have minded actually having a little bit more Andy Serkis. I do feel like he didn't have that much screen time in this movie. Matt Reeves clearly knows that Serkis is an absolutely fantastic actor. He can make the most out of what is a fairly small but pivotal part in the movie. I did feel like he checked out of the movie a little early, and if I were to make any adjustments, I don't know. Let me see that he's okay getting out of the hospital or something. I don't know. Come out on crutches or something. I don't know. Yeah, I kept expecting a scene, because we talked about the glider where Batman and just like eats it on the ground after trying to use the glider. I kept expecting him to like go to Alfred and be like, yeah, so we got to work on a version two of that. Yeah. <laughs> just something sort of very post movie, like Alfred's okay. And then Bruce is like, so anyway, can you help me make this? Cause it needs some tweaks. I do love that we're sitting here talking about a three hour movie going like, gosh, I would have loved more of it. <laughs> I mean, that is the ultimate compliment. (laughs) Yeah. So the film has actually got a little bit of controversy in the UK, at least because it carries a 15 certificate, which prohibits viewers under the age of 15 from seeing it. This is not the first DC movie to have that. The two Suicide Squad films had that. Joker was rated that, but it's the first mainline Batman film to be rated 15. Mm -hmm. And there is calls from some corners whether that rating was too high, and I disagree with them in all honesty. So the Batman is a PG-13 movie, in the States, I would say just barely by the skin of its teeth. <laughs> right, and I think that's only because it doesn't look as gory as it feels. Like, right at the beginning, you see people's heads are getting bashed in, but you yes. really don't see it. Somebody's thumb gets hacked off, but you don't see a, like a bloody nub. It's kind of impressive. I think that's the only reason why it's skirted by. People don't say the F word enough, and there wasn't any gore shots. Yeah. It's like watching a TV version of Seven. <laughs> Yeah. It's really interesting because I honestly didn't even notice or register the F-bomb that occurred near the start of the movie because usually I'll like pick those mm. up in a PG-13 film and it's like, ah, that was their one use. When he goes happy fucking Halloween, I was like, yeah, of course. That's just the tone that this movie is going for. I feel like I'm watching an R-rated film. I didn't even clock it. Yeah. The horror elements here are very strong, actually. While you don't see anything and even when the severed thumb is found, it is never in focus and the actual severed part of it is never seen in close-up. It's always via a technicality. I do feel like that's a bit of an indictment of the PG-13, though, that you have a movie that is incredibly dark, has a lot of implied torture, a man's face is bitten off by rats, but we just don't see the aftermath. I feel like there is maybe something a little bit wrong with the racing that puts that. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of middle ground for teens, whereas I can understand the British response. No, this is strong enough in its implication through very heavy sound effects. It's a clearly a film made for adults. It apparently was so controversial that in Belfast, 
passed, the local council overrode the censors, which is a power that local councils can do in the UK, but very rarely excise. Oh, wow. Spider-Man back in the day was a 12 certificate before it became advisory. That meant that several local councils lowered it down to PG. Belfast is in Northern Ireland. That's in keeping with the Irish ratings in general, that in mainland Ireland there is a 15A rating, which I believe Batman has, but there's also a 16 rating, which is a hard age certificate. Yeah. Oh, okay. I personally, while I was watching it, thought, yeah, I know exactly why this got a 15. There is no way this would have been rated lower over here yeah. without pretty significant editing. Again, it speaks to the tone of the movie and the way it's made, and particularly the strength of the horror elements when the Riddler's around. That opening scene immediately, I watched it and went, yeah, I know exactly why it got this rating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of not too dissimilar from Psycho, yeah. where you feel like it's really gruesome because you think you're seeing somebody getting stabbed or hit or whatever, but really you're not actually seeing a lot of it, and yet it still completely gives off the impression that it was intending to do. It's the same thing that Nolan did in the Dark Knight films with the infamous pencil trick in particular, but I feel like it goes a step beyond that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I saw this movie yesterday, there was a five-year-old in my screening. (laughs) See, this is exactly the problem. I only heard him once just make a little noise, but I was just like, I wonder what he thinks of the film right now. I wonder if he's having fun. Yeah. Because this is incredibly long, incredibly somber, and incredibly dark and scary. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I remember being 11 and watching Dark Knight in theaters and being like, wow, I'm watching my first adult serious movie. This is so badass. <laughs> so maybe that five-year-old's also having a very similar formative experience. Is it going to come out and being like, wow, I'm a fan of David Fincher now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember being surprised, actually, that it got PG-13, because I was fully on the understanding that they were actually making it as an R-rated movie, and then I was like, oh, they actually gave it a PG-13. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) It was very surprising, but I guess it made sense. Sometimes you can watch things, you can tell when it's neutered down from, like, an R to a PG-13, where it's like they do remove shots of violence or stuff like that. This didn't feel that way. This felt like Matt Reeves got exactly the types of shots and gore that he wanted and always intended to get, which honestly makes it even more terrifying that this is the preferred version. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only time I noticed they pulled back is it is very weird that Batman points out what is happening with the wound on the severed thumb, but we never see an insert shot of it. That is the only time I felt like the movie pulled one punch for the sake of the rating. Mm. Yeah. But otherwise, it definitely feels like it's pretty much exactly what Matt Reeves wanted to make. Mm-hmm. There was very few compromises here, which is great, especially after the back of a lot of the DC films having very high-profile studio and interference whereas this it felt like everyone was on board with exactly with what they were making you can see that in the end result which is extremely confident i do feel like they felt oh man we're not going to be able to get away with making a batman movie without just for about two seconds putting the joker in there though yeah, <laughs> yeah. that felt to me like ah, uh, that kind of compromised this story but okay it was so little that i don't feel like it totally ruined my the batman experience yeah that was the one thing where this feels like an executive was like, you should shoot a scene with Joker in it and add it for a post credit, mm-hmm. which apparently it wasn't. But that was just the only moment where it's like, mm, this feels like franchise executive compromising right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I am glad that as far as I understand, there wasn't a post credit scene. We did not stay because we all had to go to the bathroom. There was just like the tease of the Elrata Alada dot com. Yeah. Or whatever, right at the very end. It wasn't really like a 
a thing. Yeah, I read that online. Yeah, it was just like a little showing of the Riddler question mark. I think it was like the end or something or whatever. Yeah. Nothing really substantial. I sat through it because I was curious. I do that thing where I see a movie and I go immediately when the credits start rolling, I look at my phone. It's like, does it have a post credit? Can I leave? Am I free? <laughs> and like all of the websites I were finding were being very coy about it. It doesn't have a post credit, but <laughs> there is something worth staying after for that might set up the next film. That's what I kept seeing. Eh, worth it? I don't know. I like, it added absolutely nothing. Yeah, I kept seeing like, is there one? Well, yes and no. And I'm like, just spit it out. Come on. I managed to find one on my phone as I was walking to the cinema. I was like, okay, that frees me of my obligation to stay. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, my test screening did not have a credit sequence. Hmm. So for my own sake, I decided to hang around for the credit sequence when I saw it in IMAX just because, oh, well, this wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite article on it was like, is there a post credit? Not really. But you should <laughs> stay for the credits anyway because the score is really good. Mm -hmm. Yes, the score is very good. We haven't talked about the score by Michael Guccino, very prolific in the superhero scoring realm at the minute. <laughs> I was so happy with the score because I miss movies having actual themes mm. and characters having like lay motifs. Yes. And I was so happy that there was like the Batman theme. I was making fun of it for a long time before I ever saw even the test screening and when they were putting out little teasers. You mean the entire theme is just and that's it? No, it's got more peaks and valleys and then cutting in constantly this other Ave Maria all throughout mm -hmm. the course of the movie and then like a really dark sinister version of Ave Maria but on piano Yeah, was a really good choice because I guess the reason why that comes up is because Riddler was an orphan and I guess maybe he was in like little orphan boys choir and they sang Ave Maria one time and I guess that's supposed to indicate Riddler shit's going down so we gotta play Ave Maria it's, that's an interesting choice <laughs> I did like the Batman theme which is heavy but not oppressively so I do feel like a lot of superhero scoring has been lacking recognizable themes for the most part and sometimes feels a bit wallpapery I didn't feel like that in this case I again felt like the scoring complemented the movie perfectly it, it had a sense of the movie's identity that it encapsulated and it enhanced at the same time mm -hmm. definitely had that I guess almost classical quality to it that the scoring in Mask of the Phantasm I mean, we keep talking about it but it's a really good movie it's really good <laughs> it is if you're taking inspiration and cues from Mask of the Phantasm you're on the right track I would agree yeah I wouldn't say it's quite as operatic as it is in that movie but there is no. definitely the same kind of presence particularly in Batman's theme which is powerful without overdoing it or feeling like it's Hans Zimmer hammering the bass <laughs> it gave me very similar vibes to like the Danny Elfman 89 theme mm. that, that was used for the animated series too mm -hmm. and it's just like that sense of this is bombastic this is immediately recognizable it was like as close as you could get to that feeling without just literally putting in the Danny Elfman score again like they did in Justice League <laughs> like they did in Justice League <laughs> I also wanted to briefly mention a few other cast members who were bring solid character actor work to this movie Jeffrey Wright as Gordon yes yeah. Peter Sarsgaard who manages to redeem himself for Green Lantern <laughs> <laughs> and of course John Turturro as Falcone tiny tiny nitpicky thing it's very weird that this is the only adaptation I can think of where they actually call the character Falcone as opposed to Falcone E where they put like a hard E yeah. on the end of it I think Gotham mm -hmm. also does Falcone mm -hmm. I think it might just be because there's always playing off of Falcone and Maroney so 
if it's like Falcone and Maroni, it gets a little repetitious, confusing yeah. to yeah. some people, especially this movie, which had a lot to do with Falcone's involvement with the whole Maroni takedown. It could probably get confusing to some audience members. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought John Turturro did a really good job. I'm a big fan of his because I'm a big Coen Brothers fan. Mm. So I've just seen him a lot. It's not like one of those where I'd put like, this is like his all time best performance. It's very much a role he can easily do. Yeah. I enjoyed seeing him here. I forgot he was in the movie. So when he showed up, I was like, oh shit, John Turturro. Okay. Yeah. It was very believable mob performance. Yeah. You get some really cartoony mob performances in some other places. Even in the animated series, it's like, you're a cartoon mob because you're in a cartoon. Mm -hmm. But this was very much like, oh no, there is a very deep mob family and seedy underbelly that's happening here that I would definitely believe exists. Yeah. It's not the best performance he's ever given, but Mm -hmm. what I will say is that like a lot of the character actors they've cast in this movie, they've cast them because they know how to play those kinds of roles. Actually, Totoro almost underplays his role to a certain extent, the kind of way that he manipulates Bruce. As you said, Caitlin, Totoro could have easily gone broad, but then, you know, he's right next to Colin Farrell, who is playing his character that way. You know, he differentiates himself that way. Jeffrey Wright is similarly reliable in the role of Gordon. I don't think it's like a showy role. Mm -hmm. He embodies those characteristics of Gordon. He is a good man. He is an honest detective. He has this intuition and kind of trust of Batman, a sort of uneasy one, but a trust nevertheless. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Wright's Gordon always felt like he was moments away from just quitting his job. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which was very nice to me. They had that one shot. It was Selena threatening the guy on the roof, right? About to push him off. Batman knocks the gun off. They have that shot of Gordon looking at the gun. Mm -hmm. And I had that moment of like, is he going to do it? Yeah. Actually really exciting to think there is a Gordon who I could reasonably believe would just shoot a guy on the side of a building. Mm. I really enjoyed his portrayal of Gordon. Such a different performance than someone like Gary Oldman who'd done it in the Nolan films. I just felt he and Batman got along so well. He just calls him man a lot. He's just like... I don't know, man. What do you think about this? You can tell that they are buds. That's what made it a lot of fun for me. Yeah, they're buds, but buds that are still kind of on edge next to each other. Yeah. yeah. No guns? That's kind of your thing, that, man. Yeah, that's your thing, man. <laughs> It's kind of interesting that the film opens with Batman and Gordon already acquainted with each other. Yes. Just kind of takes it spoken as gospel. It again speaks to the fact that Reeves is aware. We are very familiar with the character. We don't need a proper origin story. We know who Gordon is. We know who Batman is. And if you don't, you can very easily pick up along the way anyway. So I think it speaks to the confidence of the movie that it doesn't feel the need to give them an origin story. It doesn't need to explain every little bit of where everyone's come from. Yeah. Which is a bit of an epidemic when it comes to (laughs) comic book movies where it feels like everything needs to be explained like no you can have some things just implied just unspoken it reminded me a lot of spider-man homecoming in the way they were just yeah we know this is the third spider-man in 15 years we're just gonna start the movie (laughs) you get it you know the spider person i mean it's interesting to consider how they would have previously known each other but you know that's what fanfic's all about (laughs) yeah and the the gotham spinoff tv show that's gonna occur from this apparently oh yeah yeah there is, yeah. It's one where I don't even know how to feel about it. It's kind of the same with like the Dune spinoff series. I don't know. I'm not really interested, <laughs> but I'm not going to knock it down. It's just kind of a thing that exists in my head until it comes on. At the same time, though, I can see possibilities in it because the way that Gotham is realized in this movie is so well done that I could very easily see the whole range of stories being built around it. And obviously, Peacemaker managed to be quite successful as a TV spinoff of the Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. There is reason to believe there is room for that 
that to succeed, especially if they've got Colin Farrell coming back mm -hmm. as Penguin, which I believe is the case and it's going to focus around him somewhat. There is definitely a lot of room to be telling more stories in this world, even if they're not maybe necessarily Batman-centric. I feel like there is definitely an opening after what has been set up in this movie. 100%. I don't want to make that mistake of doing that thing of, oh, this movie is successful, well, this character needs a spin-off, this character needs a spin-off, this character. Right. But at the same time, there is a part of me that's like, oh, I'd love something that's just Catwoman in Bloodhaven. Mm, yes, yeah. that was my first thought. I was like, I would actually really like to see that, please. And we're not going to be short of Batman material for the next few months, because as we talked about earlier, the League of Super Pets is coming out, as we all know, the most important part of the DC continuity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 100%. But perhaps more majorly is, of course, the Flash movie that's coming out, which uh, has two Batmans for the price of one, in that we have the return of Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck, very likely for the last time in that movie. We're also getting Batgirl as well, right? Where Keaton's going to be in it. It's on HBO Max, yeah. Oh, oh, it's on HBO Max, okay. I am excited for that because that is, oh my god, a actual Bat family. Yes, that's what I want. Yeah, there's so many Bat family characters that just need to be in a movie already and haven't been. Mm -hmm. Like Cassandra Kane, it'd be cool to see her in a movie at some point. <laughs> yep. I'm so sad for that Batwoman TV series. <laughs> it's gone through so much crap. Just poor Batwoman as a character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask, because there is so much Batman-related media where there is maybe going to be a bit of a saturation point, where there's maybe a bit too much of it, but given the way that this movie has succeeded and the hype for it, there is clearly an appetite for it. Yeah. And I think as Emily and Kaylin were saying, there's more to this universe than Batman, and I feel like if they focus on telling different stories with different characters from different perspectives, then you could actually have a whole bunch of different stories. And again, what we're going to see in Flash is going to be very different from, obviously, what we've just seen, because it's referencing two previous incarnations of the character. Mm -hmm. And that's like the thing that gets me so much about the Flash movie is some of the first teaser images they leaked were Batman stuff. This is a Flash movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is the first time that Flash is going to have his own solo film, theatrical release, and it just seems so focused on the Batman stuff. Yeah. I hope it'll be a fun movie. I hope it'll be a fun ride. But at the same time, I just, I kind of just want something a little bit more smaller scale for Flash's first outing than trying to do this whole Flashpoint multiverse sort of like whatever. They've been trying to push a multiverse way too fast yeah. this entire time. They never took the time that it needed to ground each of these characters first before trying to do the biggest stuff. Yeah. I feel very guilty in this in the sense that I do agree. It is weird that the Flash movie is focusing so hard on Batman. I wish it wasn't Flashpoint. I wish it was just like a Flash thing. But there's also that other part of my brain that's like, oh my god, Keaton's back. Yeah. Oh my god, there's the Keaton Batmobile. Oh my god, it's gonna be so great to see him. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I'm very excited to see it. I'm incredibly conflicted about it. <laughs> I really hope it's gonna be a lot of fun and I, I see a lot of potential there. But at the same time, it just feels like they're trying to push the Flash as a secret additional Batman movie because of all of the Batman stuff they, they keep teasing. And, and th that's really like the thing people are most excited about for is Keaton returning and all that stuff. So I don't know. I'm excited for it, but I'm also just like, I'm only excited because I'm excited for Keaton because that's my Batman as a kid. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Keaton was great as Batman. I'm very interested to see what they do with him given he's resisted coming back for so long because he felt like he couldn't really bring anything more to that character. 
my hope is that the Batgirl movie is sort of a stealth Batman Beyond sort of thing with Barbara being Terry and then just having Michael Keaton just be this older Bruce Wayne that just is the guy in the chair. That is my dream for that movie. And I hope that's what actually happens because I don't know if I want to see him in the cowl at this point. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. The Flash stuff, it's linking him with the sort of mainline DC universe stuff. That's fine in its particular corner, but the Batman here really needs to be left to its own devices, I would say. Just let it be its own thing as its own universe. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Don't try and fold it into the main DC continuity. Just make it its own thing. That would be what I would say in the future. The only way I would say exception to that is if they wanted to put Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Oh yeah. She's so good. I can't imagine (laughs) another person knocking it out of the park as much as she does. It's going to be really interesting to see if Flash does actually reboot the Snyderverse and erase everything. Mm. I think that's going to be a big determination regarding the future of of DC movies and Batman fatigue and and things like that. Mm. Look, we got the big long movie. We got the big long Justice League. That's enough, right? Isn't that enough for people? Look, no. Zack Snyder and Ben Affleck said they don't want to do it, but what we need to do is drag them back in (laughs) and have them make Justice League 2, 3, and 4. Yes, do it for me. (laughs) They owe it to me. And on that note, I think it's time to wrap things up. So, Scott, where can people find you? You can find me mostly at my YouTube channel. It's called NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. I make video essays about comics and superheroes and other nerdy things that I'm into. Scooby-Doo sometimes. Big Scooby-Doo fan. I once was referenced as a Scooby-Doo expert, so there you go. Thank you very much. (laughs) I also have a podcast. If your listeners like podcasts, I have one. It's called It's Probably Not Aliens. It's a show I do with my buddy Tristan where we debunk a whole bunch of ancient astronaut theory from the History Channel show Ancient Aliens, and we teach you a lot about the real-world history of people and cultures and places, and it's a lot of fun. Emily, where can people find you? So people can find me at Lady Emily on YouTube. That's my solo channel. That's where I put my main work. I do a lot of deep dives into various different obscure media or media I'm interested in, as well as a lot of internet things, though I'm also at this point, after the last video, I'm not doing anything internet-related for a while. (laughs) (laughs) For my own mental health, I'm not. And you can also find me i do co-writing work on the channel uh, sarah z that is sarah with a z for you non-canadians mm-hmm. <laughs> and that one's pretty similar a lot of media analysis a lot of fandom analysis it's a good time uh, and i'm also on twitter at great trashire i don't really tweet about anything important i disagree <laughs> <laughs> i mean does anyone <laughs> And Caitlin, where can people find you? All over the internet, on all social media, at MarsGirl, M-A-R-Z-G-U-R-L. A lot of Twitter, a lot of being angry on the internet on Twitter. And then Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, TikTok. All of it. To varying degrees on each <laughs> of those platforms. I'm around and you can talk at me. Perfect. And of course, you can find me at FilmBrainBMB on Twitter. I'm also just plain old FilmBrain on YouTube, where you can find all my reviews and so forth. I'm also that on Patreon. And I've recently launched a Ko-fi page, so be sure to check those out as well. I have about 60 squillion social media things, so I probably shouldn't mention them at the end of this podcast. So I will just say, as I venture into the night, I'm Matthew Burke, fading out. 
Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain where you can experience those episodes early among other perks. And just a quick shout out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, Henry Jacob, Jonah Gustafson, Harry Baker, Vincent Chiang, Ina Civic, Colin M. Cherry, Misty, Rachel, Tom Oliver Maddox. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media, please use the hashtag FilmBrainPodcast.